I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Zivi Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And speaking of books, I have two of my own books coming out this spring and summer. Princess Charming is a picture book, which debuts on April 19th. And Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, comes out on July 1st, and it is truly a labor of love. I hope you'll pre-order, order, and join me on tour as I go across the country. You can find out more at zibbyowens.com or bookendsmemoir.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens because I always post about everything. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. I need your help. If you love this podcast, you will love my children's book. It's called Princess Charming, and I am really trying to drum up pre-order sales. You might not know this, but before a book comes out is actually a really important time for the whole book's trajectory. So... Please pre-order Princess Charming, which comes out April 19th today. Just stop what you're doing and go do that, please. When it arrives on April 19th, you can give it to a loved one in your life, a niece, a grandchild, a child, a student, a kid walking by on the street, anybody. But if you could do this, here is my offer. If you email me your receipt showing me that you bought the book online somewhere and pre-ordered it, Email info at zibbyowens.com. That's info at zibbyowens.com. And I will pick 10 people to do a special giveaway project award to from my new Bonfire merch store, which you should also check out, which is um, the Zibby Owens Media Bonfire store where you can get all sorts of cool t-shirts and uh, tote bags and author sayings and all sorts of great stuff. So what did I say? 10 of you are going to get a special care package of your choice from the Bonfire store. And I will pick at random from all of you who pre-order the book. So if that wasn't clear, 
Go pre-order Princess Charming. Again, it's called Princess Charming. It's my debut picture book. It's really cute and great, and it's illustrated by Holly Haddam. And then after you get the receipt, screenshot it or forward it to me at info at zibbyowens.com, and you will be entered to win one of 10 exciting care packages. So go off and order. Thank you so much. Bye. Michael Lewis. The Michael Lewis is the author of The Premonition, a pandemic story. He also hosts Against the Rules, a Pushkin podcast. He is the best-selling author of many, many books, including The Undoing Project, Liar's Poker, Flash Boys, Moneyball, The Blind Side, Home Game, and The Big Short, among others. He lives in Berkeley, California with his wife, Tabitha Soren. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. We're going to discuss the premonition and your life and your podcast and your new Pushkin podcast against rules and everything. So I'm delighted to have you here. I can't even tell you. Happy to be here. And I was just saying to you before it started, when I started my podcast, I had this wish list of some of my favorite authors who I was just like, would be over the moon excited. And you have been on that list since day one. So this is like a personal, just super exciting moment for me from Liar's Poker Days to now and everything. So so I don't really understand why it's taking this long then, because I've been here. You, you know, I, you should have just called. Uh, <laughs> I tried a while back, but you weren't promoting anything or something. And I don't know. At least oh. now I'm big enough that you want to talk to me or something. So I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't we start with the premonition, which, oh my gosh. I mean, first of all, some of the characters in this, not even characters, some of the people in this book, I can't believe that. Let's talk about the young girl who started figuring this out as a science project and how she and her dad were so, I mean, I'm like, what is my kid doing? Like, what are my kids doing that are going to change the world? I mean, oh my gosh, they can barely like deal with themselves. I'm kidding. But tell me about this and her and Laura and her family and and all of it. Sure. So this is how the book opens. The book opens with a 13-year-old girl in Albuquerque, New Mexico named Laura Glass, whose father is a polymath scientist at Sandia Labs, like one of these guys who's working in a national lab and is just a smart guy. And it has the attitude towards his girls' science projects that most that most dads have towards their kids' little league careers. Like, like that's what he cares about. And, the, <laughs> and the, two, the two girls know that every year they have to enter the science fair. And so they're kind of, they like it because it's something they do with their dad, but it's sort of like, oh, we got to find something to do. And Laura Glass is watching her dad play with a, a model that he had built, a computer model he'd built at Sandia Labs, where he's, and on the screen, and this explains the cover of the book, actually, on yep. the screen, there, there are all these green dots, except one with one red dot. And they're moving, there are rules about how these dots are moving. It looks something like a video game, but when a green dot hits a red dot, or when a, gray, when a red dot hits a green dot, the green dot turns red. So slowly, the screen goes from all green dots eventually all red dots. And he's explaining to her what it's for. He's explaining how he's modeling like how traffic jams happen or or how financial cascading financial crises happens. And she looks at it and she says, well, that looks like a disease spreading. And she says, could you use it to like figure out how if the bubonic plague came to Albuquerque, New Mexico, how it would spread? And he said, yes, and let, let's try to model that. And so they, this it starts when she's actually 13 years old. It goes on for years, four or five years. And by the time, and it gets more and more elaborate. She's she's like doing things like going out in the community and get everybody to list the social contacts they have every day to try to figure out how 
of a disease might move that's transmissible. And they change the disease to the flu, something more like COVID. And by the time they're done, they're able to ask questions about what you might do in a community to stop the spread of disease, what rules you might introduce. And he, he sees that things like, I don't know, closing schools has this unbelievable effect on disease transmission. That is really like that's, you know, if you want to find the place, the laboratory where the where, where a bug moves around, that's where it moves around. And it's because they're in such close proximity to each other. And he looks and he starts to look around. He says, you know, the common wisdom in the world is you can't really do anything to stop a communicable disease. It goes back to 1918, that a vaccine, but, but before you get a vaccine, that like inter, inter, interfering in the society doesn't do much. And he gets frantic because he thinks, wow, this is not true. You know, people need to know about this. And he tries to get people in the epidemiology to pay attention to him and no, nobody pays attention to him until another main character in my book, a doctor named Carter Mesher, who's brought into the Bush White House to answer just this question. Like, what happens in our society if a pandemic starts? Like, what do you do between the time the pathogen arrives and you have a vaccine? Can you do anything? Because the conventional wisdom was not really. Not, nothing's worth the trouble. Through a social connection, Carter Mesher hears about this little girl science fair project. They get the model into the White House and it becomes part of the, right? They use it as the tool to start to do the analysis that leads to eventually to the United States plan, the CDC plan about what you do in a pandemic. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. And it, it's it's sort of, I love it for a bunch of reasons, but one of them is it's sort of like, it's, a, it's such a different approach to science, the education, than, than I got when I was a kid. Mine was, I can remember like not understanding why I was lighting the Bunsen burner or cutting the frog <laughs> up and, and I didn't like it. And there was never anything. It wasn't a question I was really trying to answer. It was just trying to do what the teacher told you to do. This is sort of, this sort of like real investigation of, of a question in a rigorous scientific way that leads a little girl to actually make a huge contribution to the world. Now, we as a society didn't really execute the plan <laughs> that these guys wrote. We did it in a, in a they didn't imagine it being going down quite the way it went down, but other societies took our plan and really understood it and internalized it. It had a big effect in the world. And you can, I mean, I think that I think anybody who's really close to it would say you can attribute some large number of lives saved during the COVID pandemic to the work that little girl did. It certainly contributed, certainly contributed. And speaking also of women who are scientists or doing experiments like this, you also have Char I think her name's Charity, who is Charity like taking Dean. over Charity, who's taking over being a health advocate um in Santa Barbara, a position nobody thought oh. she would even want. And next thing you know, you have her outside operating on this potential TB patient in this graphic detail. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Well, it, if their book had a trick, I mean, if the premonition had something going on and it was a sort of a trick it was trying to play, it was a trick I wished the society had played the minute we got ourselves into the, into the pandemic. It was to pay attention, much more close attention, to people who had actually spent their careers battling communicable disease on the streets. Mm -hmm. This is not the CDC. This is this is local public health officers. This is, and it's it's it wasn't COVID, it was you know, drug-resistant tuberculosis, it was measles, it was whatever it was. But you could see the political problems, 
the logistical problems, the effect powerful people could, could have on a disease investigation. You see all the things that would manifest themselves in a much bigger way in our society in a Petri dish. If you just if you just looked at what these local health officers endured every day. And in Charity Dean, I found not just the local health office, but a really badass local health officer. She was yep. in Santa Barbara County. And at some point, she runs the whole state of California. But it was the Santa Barbara County stuff that really interested me. She Because it was, a, for her, it wasn't a job. It was a calling. She'd been yep. obsessed with communicable disease since she was a little girl. Had had a, a really kind of dramatic upbringing. The Tara Westover story, the educated story, that's a bit like her story. She was raised mm-hmm. not to have an edu- not to be educated. She was raised in a very religious rural community that didn't want her to go to college. And she insisted on going and getting a medical degree and a degree in public health, cost her, severed her relationship with her childhood. And, and basically, what kind of interesting, why, I thought she was such a great character. At the center of her was courage, was this bravery. I mean, she was scared of a lot of things and she faced her fears. And she had to do that again and again, just to do this job, uh, do it well. And it, it told you know, like, nobody should have to be so brave to do their job saving American lives. It just shouldn't be that hard, but it was hard. And the ways it was hard told you, a, just told you a lot about what was going to happen. And the premonition, so the title of the book, yep. I mean, it wasn't just that she had this sense that one day we were going to face a pandemic. She did, but you know, that could have, couldn't have happened. The real premonition was she had a real sense grounded in daily experience that if we did have a pandemic, mm-hmm. we were not going to handle it well. You could see it coming. Yeah. And and I loved it. This is an odd thing to say about a book that's about a pandemic. It was the most joyous writing experience I have ever had. And I was aware of it when I was writing it. It was just, it was a total pleasure to write. And I kept thought, I kept thinking, isn't this weird? You're like <laughs> laughing, you're having fun. You can't wait to get out of bed in the morning and write this thing. I had that feeling that you kind of long for it. And I've had this other times in my career where you feel like you're just a conduit of the story. It's just like poor coming through you and just mm-hmm. get out of the way of the thing. And which is an exhilarating feeling. And I think it was just because these characters were, were just absolutely thrilling as characters. And I had the funny experience of when the book came out, people picking it up and it took to, to about page 60 before they couldn't, they could figure out whether this was fiction or nonfiction. Oh, like, wow. are these people real? And then, but, but the minute you collide with the Bush White House and they're making the pandemic creating, then you know, well, this is, must be real. It's the Bush White House. And, but, but, but the kind of things that the characters were, what was happening, it's, it feels made up. And I love that. I love that when reality deals you that kind of hand. And in this case, reality dealt me that kind of hand. I feel like people say that about the pandemic too, that it all felt like science fiction and it felt like a movie and could it really be real? And so, I mean, life being stranger than fiction, it's all. That was, it was a, I was trying to recreate that feeling. Mm -hmm. And it was, so anyway, I appreciate you asking those questions because, you know, this will tell you something about how books get out there in the world. I've done, you know, this is a paperback, right? So this is out 11 months after I first published it. I don't think, I've had 50 interviews, 75 interviews. I don't think anybody's asked me about that little girl. It book really? opens with it. It's an amazing story. Nobody has nobody asked me about it. They want to ask they want to ask me how much do you blame Trump or like how do you fix the CDC or those sorts of questions and I do feel that that's for the reader to think about. 
Mm-hmm. I'm just telling you the story of these people who I think can really help you lead you to some thoughts about what went wrong. So I don't have a chance. I don't, you know, unless people read the book, they don't hear that story because people don't ask me about it. Oh, well, I'm glad. I mean, I found those, that's what I found most interesting is the people yeah. behind it. It's like, why did Charity leave her surgeon husband? And like, you know, tell me more, you know, yes, <laughs> I exactly. wanted to go deeper into that. But, you know, I think this book obviously dovetails nicely into your Pushkin produced podcast about experts and who do we listen to? Who are the experts? How do they become experts? And, you know, <laughs> I like never want to file a medical claim again after listening to some of the, the interviews and everything. Tell me about that, the <laughs> podcast and the third season of that. And, and so you've um, listened, you, you sounds like you've listened to episode one. I've listened to episode one. Yes. Okay. So That's it. Uh, six levels down the L six. So the big idea for the podcast, this is the third season was to take a character in American life, like a role in American life, one that had been a little volatile or controversial and explore what had happened to, to American life through the role. So the first season was about referees in American life. Second season was about coaches in American life. And the third season is about experts in American life. And each season, I think not by accident, ends up having a big inequality unfairness ends up being sitting right in the center of the story. Like what are the effects of, what are the, you know, in the first season, what are the effects on inequality when you start to destroy the referee, the, the you know, undermine the, the authority of the referee or the regulator or whoever's playing that role? I mean, the person in power has more power. It's, but the hope of the podcast is you take, we have seven episodes and you kind of look at the problem from different angles. And the, the particular problem this season, really, it did just grow out of the premonition. It was sort of like, all right, we were easily the world's most equipped society deal with a pandemic. Authorities, had ex- experts had, had before the pandemic sought to measure each society's, each country's ability to deal with a pandemic. And they were measuring knowledge. They were measuring microbiology labs and, and you know, state-of-the-art pandemic plans and, and material resources to throw at the problem, all that. Yet, you know, we had a little bit more than 4% of the world's population and more than 20% of the world's deaths. We really underperformed. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of thousands of people are dead who didn't have to die. If we just performed like an average industrialized democracy, it's tragedy. It's a reflection of, I think, a deeper illness in the society. We're not taking care of each other. But there's this other thing going on where, like, we were unbelievably good at generating knowledge about disease, about how to track disease, about all, the human genome project is here. That's this should be at the center of the. So we were unbelievably good at, at generating knowledge and really not so good at using it or internalizing it or spreading it. Unbelievably good at generating these experts and not very good at using them, figuring out who they are. So it was that disconnect that I wanted to kind of play with in the podcast. And the first episode is it grows right out of the premonition because it's this idea that in big organizations, big countries, big systems, complex systems, when there is a particular problem that arises, crisis, very often the person who has the expertise to answer the problem, to deal with the problem, fix the problem, is is way buried way down in the organization. Six L6, six mm-hmm. levels down. And mysteriously, the organization has horrible trouble surfacing that problem. 
and surfacing that expert, figuring out who they are, getting them to the problem. In the case of my book, Charity Dean was six levels down in the state of California. It took them a while to figure out she knew more than anybody about what they should do. Mm-hmm. It took two months longer than they should have to get her into Gavin Newsom's office. And to, and the question was like, like, what is this about? So we take a story. It's the, it's a story that is generated by the person who found Charity Dean in the state of California, but in another in another iteration in his life, another he was trying to solve a problem in the in the medical industrial complex. It was basically how to get paid how to get paid by an insurance company, mm-hmm. and this is back in the nineties. And he finds that medical billing is its own bizarre, complex expertise. Nobody's ever treated these people as if they're experts. You find the best one in the world and you can build a business around her. And she's six levels down on the org chart of every hospital or every doctor's office. And, and it's about that woman and, and how they make a create a billion dollar company around her expertise. But the bigger point is, I think, and this recurs in several of the episodes, is we have this inequality in a society when you have imbalances of status, when you have hierarchy, Sometimes it's very hard to, for the people who are important and at the top to figure out what the unimportant, the little people know and, and take them seriously. So inequality sort of exacerbates the problem. And there, ver- there are versions of this in the stories we'll tell on the podcast. The podcast is a different thing. It's totally fun. It's storytelling. It's not, it's not just, you know, shooting shit with somebody <laughs> for 30 minutes or 45 minutes. It, it is you know, I write a script. I interview a whole bunch of people around some story and then it's like a movie script and then perform it. And it's, for me, it's been, it's been a gas. It's just a different, it's like a, it's like flexing a different muscle or like, it's like cross training Mm -hmm. that it's a different sort of literary exercise that, that feeds back into the books. I saw it feedback into the premonition and, and it feeds back in a very particular way. It's, it's, when you're doing this stuff for the ear, the ear is a very emotional, emotionally attuned instrument, much more so than the eye. And you are, if you aren't telling a story with an emotional dimension, you're, you're missing a trick in pot, in, in an in a oral storytelling. So you find, you, you, it's made me, it's made me more aggressive in finding the emotional content of the story hmm. and also made me less patient with boring stuff. <laughs> because because maybe I'm doing it now, but <laughs> but when you bore when you bore people when you're actually talking to them, you're not you boring really, me. You really pick it up. It, whereas if you bore people when you're writing a book, you can, you can go off in your own fugue state and bore people for pages and not be aware that's what you're doing and lose a reader. So it's made me. I think it's brought me closer to the reader to do the podcast. I love that. That's very cool. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything, it might be time to work on those things. And I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because... Even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help, and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. No, yours show is super produced. I mean, yeah, it's very different than this show where we talk, but no, it's a- no, not, you know, Nothing it's, against the show. It's a different no, thing. Thank, no, yeah. I know. It's, yeah. it's um, I feel like there need to be different categories, different ways to describe. I, I what did I, I've been calling it like pot, you know, Podtainment, not entertainment. Pod, I had some clever word, which of course I can't think of now. But some of these podcasts are really, you know, they're it's a different form of entertainment. That's all. It's a different something new, right? That should mm. be analyzed in its own bucket, sort of to the side. Which is I where. think that's right. I think that's right? right. And and right now nobody's. It's just all podcasts. They, yeah, no, they, it's not. They are there. There are very different. They're de- very different forms. And the the scripted form. It's a version of this American life. It's yes. it's yes. you know it's those sorts of things which are really crafted, really time-consuming, hard to do. And, you know, when they work, they're magical. When they don't work, they're not. But when they work, they're magical. Yes, absolutely true. Yeah, I feel like, to your point on experts, like, I felt like I used to have a healthy respect for experts until 9-11, honestly. I'm a New Yorker, and I lost my college roommate and best friend on 9-11. And I was here and in business school at the same time. And all the experts are saying like, no, 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 it's totally fine. It's safe here. It's safe. You can, and I'm like, it doesn't feel safe. It doesn't, the breathing and smelling, like this goes against my common sense that everything is okay. And now of course it's, it wasn't safe there. It was everyone who was working down, got the, got all these diseases and all these things are coming out. And I'm like, I knew it. I knew that that wasn't right, but I didn't listen because I just listened to the experts and wanted to believe that they knew what they were talking about. So shame on me. 9-11 itself was an L6 problem that six levels down in the FBI in the Minneapolis branch, they had really clear early warning signs that these people were, were about to prepare some sort of attack. And it never got its, that, that informa- information never reached the head of the FBI. The thing was, was preventable given what they knew in Minneapolis, if they just followed it hard. And it was the problem was getting the information up the org chart. So the whole thing is a dramatization of this 
problem with that one of this aspect of the problem with expertise. But to your more general point about, oh, sometimes the experts are wrong or misleading you. I don't, you know, I still maintain a very healthy respect for, I think it's a healthy respect for experts. It's sometimes hard to figure out who the expert is, especially when the subject is very complicated and it's mm-hmm. moving at TV speed. But there is a general thing. I think it is a problem in the society that people, we have a show about expertise where the experts clearly getting better and better and better. Mm-hmm. But the people who are on the receiving end of the expert's advice think the expert's getting worse and worse and worse, or or at least are treating them as if they're getting worse and worse and worse. You find this in a lot of weird places. Medicine is actually a, a really good example. You go to a doctor like 100 years ago, and he was more likely to kill you than to help you, right? I mean, <laughs> the, the medicine has become a science and has become, they know more and more and more. But even before the pandemic, before people started not wanting to take the vaccine and all that, if you've gone to talk to a doctor about, or a nurse, like what irritates you most about what's going on in the world, they might quite likely would have said, increasingly people are coming in and saying, no, I don't have this because I read this article on WebMD, Mm. or yes, I do. And and they think the little knowledge that they're able to get their hands on is leading them to think they know more than the doctor and really interfering with the doctor's ability to do his job. Now, not that you shouldn't participate in your own care. That's not what I'm saying. It's, but it is that, but there is a kind of, wrench that's been thrown into the relationship between the medical expert and the patient by the patient's lack of kind of respect for the medical expertise. And there are other examples of this that are kind of right under your nose and you don't see them. If you talk to an old weatherman, Mm -hmm. someone who's been a meteorologist for like 50 years, as I did on one of the shows, he says, you know, it was really funny. The guy in Alabama, he said, 50 years ago, I didn't know anything. I mean, 50 years ago, I like he he'd like go outside to see what the weather was and then go inside and and like Ron Burgundy on Anchorman, be very confident about what the weather was. But he, his 10-day forecast was useless. He had no idea if a tornado was going to hit. He didn't know. He really had very little useful information. <laughs> but today, he, he has a pretty good 10-day forecast. His three-day forecast is like three times as accurate as it used to be. He can save people from hurricanes and tornadoes and he can, do, he can work miracles. He said... Today, I get so much more grief than I used to. Mm. If I'm wrong, people are all over me. In the old days, I was like people, I was very confident, but I didn't know. And I got very little in the way of blowback. Now it's, I'm getting, you know, people bite my head off every day and I'm mostly right. So it's a, you know, that kind of thing has been happening in a lot of places where the technology information data has enabled us and experts to know more and more people are more and more suspicious or skeptical or dubious about them. So no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> it's, a, a little, it's a little bit of that. Yeah. It's a, little bit of, it's a little bit of that. Well, I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this or not. I've I've had a lot of loss in my life now. Apparently two things caused by L6 problems, 9-11, and I lost my mother-in-law and grandmother-in-law in the pandemic. And so, oh. so much for that. But I just wanted to say how sorry I was to hear about your daughter and your loss of Dixie. And I read this quote you had where you said, it's interesting to be admitted as a citizen to the kingdom of grief. And I just wanted to say, you know, my heart just so goes out to you and just wanted to talk to you for a minute about, about that and how, you know, the, the grief and all, you know, the randomness of it too. I loved her so much. She was, she was so admirable, so brave, fantastic kid. And we left nothing on the field. We left it all on the field. 
in our relationship. I mean, we were a very, we were a very tight family and she was an athlete. She was a softball player, going to be a sophomore at Pomona College. And I'd been her coach her whole life. She was killed in a car accident 11 months ago, a little less than 11 months ago. And the, yes, the first thing I noticed is I had this new citizenship and it wasn't, it wasn't the club of parents who had lost children. It was more, a much more general one that all of a sudden people around me, even people I was quite close to opened up for the first time about their losses. And it made me realize that we don't talk about it very much. It's sort of like, it's just an unpleasant subject for a lot of people, but but I started to see dimensions of people I loved that I, I was glad I was grateful to see. And I started to think of that as I thought of that as the first thing Dixie gave me after her death, that there are these, I'm going to have this other life now. It's going to be different than the life I would have had, had she lived. I am not going to pretend it's going to be better, but it, it's going to be different. And I'm going to pay close attention to the things that happen and the things I do because of her. And, and so that's the first thing I paid close attention to was, oh, I now have this new relationship with my friend, Nathan, because he's now talking about the death of his, of his first wife, who I never knew, you know, all before I met him. And I don't, the people long for an answer to the question of how to feel this, how to endure this. It's unendurable in some means at moments, right? And there are all around us off the shelf answers you can grab off the rack answers. And I've found myself still trying to resist those, trying to see this as an independent journey that I have to go on and I can have companions on this journey, but it's just going to be in the end, my journey. In the end, I'm in, I'm there alone in the beginning and I'm going to be there alone at the end with this particular thing. And I've got to figure out the most noble, bravest way to go on the journey and not, not resort to other people's solutions for how they, and I, I feel it's a, I mean, that's, it's, it's a bit of a lonely thing, but it has, that it has to be a bit of a lonely thing because the nature it's, it's all turns on the nature of my relationship with that, with that person, with that child. It's so particular. It's who she was. It's who I am. It's how we were together. It's, there's no, no one has exactly the same experience. So I want to preserve the uniqueness of the experience in how of, of loving her and how I grieve her, but it's hard. I, I mean, it, it is hard. It's still hard. And as I told my other children, Walker and Quinn, Walker's a freshman in high school and Quinn's a junior in college. So Dixie was in the middle. I said, right from the beginning, I said, here's what I'm going to do. And you can, you, you feel free to use this trick. I said, I'm going to keep a list of the things that make me feel better. And I'm going to keep a list of the things that make me feel worse. And I'm going to do the things that make me feel better. And I'm not going to do the things that make me feel worse. And I'm not going to feel guilty about not doing them. So feel free to join me in this pursuit of like happiness in life. And they're kind of doing it. They're doing it in their own way, but they're, they're kind of doing it. And there's another thing that Dixie has given death that's given me is incredible pride in my family because they're they're trying so hard. Everybody's trying so hard. But thank you for asking about her. Talking about her makes me feel makes me feel good. Keeps her around. Oh, that's beautiful. That's really good advice. It sounds so simple, but just doing the things in life that make us feel better. Why is that so hard? 
Why is that such a why is that such a, a leap to to accept and then act on? It's 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 beautiful and your relationship sounds beautiful and I'm sorry for your loss, but it sounds like wow, what a what a gift that you had that wonderful relationship too. She was the best. And life is filled with accident and fortune, luck, good and bad. And you just got to accept that. I mean, I, I, I've always accepted that life was full of luck and I'd always had good luck. Mm-hmm. Now I have to recognize that that's not always the case, but I should learn to respond as graciously towards bad luck as I've tried to towards good luck. And uh-huh. it's it just, that's, it's hard, but that's, that's kind of how I think about it. And there is this, there's something really profound about the rules of improvisational comedy that that you don't get to choose what is kind of thrown at you mm-hmm. that you do it well by accepting what's thrown at you and then building on it as opposed to fighting it mm-hmm. or being angry about it or resisting it or trying to change it when you can't change it yeah this is life that it's it's it throws things at you good and bad and you try to just build on what it throws at you. That's all you can do. I can't, I don't really have another solution. Yeah. Well, I hope at some point you'll write more about her so that the rest of us can get to know her better. And I I feel like there's just something magical in recreating someone on the page so that she touches the lives of people that she would never have met otherwise. So I don't know if that's in the plan or whatever, and maybe it's inappropriate to even suggest, but selfishly, I, I hope you'll do that. The time will come. Yeah. You know, it's not yet. but the time will come. Yeah. Michael, thank you. Thank you for taking the time with me today. Thank you for all of your work, not just the newest stuff, but your whole career of work that I have followed. So with such sort of interest and respect and thank you for all that you do and for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you, Zibby. See you down the road. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.